Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service from February 6th, 2022 from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, not to the book of Acts, but to the book of Ruth. And in case you're going, where is that? It's been a long time. Find Joshua, then Judges, and then if you've gone to 1 Samuel, you've gone too far. Right there is the book of Ruth. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 1, and for the next uh, couple of months, we're going to be looking at what God has given us in this short story of the book of Ruth. Just four chapters, by no means one of the longer books of Scripture. This morning's message is simply titled, There and Back Again. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, that may sound somewhat familiar. That is the subtitle of The Hobbit. In fact, uh, in Tolkien's world, uh, when Bilbo Baggins makes his journey to fight dragons and monsters and have this great adventure, he writes a little story called, There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Tale. And we know it as the book, The Hobbit. And in his book, uh, there and back again, Bilbo Baggins uh, spends the entire book telling of all these adventures and all these stories, and the entirety of the journey takes up the entire book, as you might well imagine. But this morning, there and back again is just six verses, not nearly as long as The Hobbit. So if you don't like reading long stories, this is the one for you. And there and back again, we're going to see a family leave Bethlehem, leave Israel, the home of God's people, they will travel to Moab and they will encounter some difficult days and they will find themselves back in just a few verses back in Bethlehem. It's it's, it's there and back again. That's all we're going to get covered this morning, but it'll be that, that setting, that journey that leads them to encounter so much when they get back home to Bethlehem. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman who was the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that Lot that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from that place where she was. We're just going to pause right there. Would you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we read the beginning of this story you've given us in Scripture, I pray that even this morning as we look at this quick journey to Moab and back, that we find in it the truths you have for us. That as we work through this story over the next several weeks, we would find ourselves drawn to the redemption that comes through Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is so much packed in these first few verses that for those of us who don't live in the time of the judges or the time of Israel some two and a half thousand years ago, that we might not be aware that it's there. 
But this story is the product of uh, uh, the, the, time and the time and age that took place some two and a half to 3,000 years ago in what's called the time of the judges. And those who are reading and hearing this story for the very first time, there's things in these introductions that they would have seen and heard and understood that perhaps you and I might not get at first glance. So when we don't look at that here this morning. At the beginning is simply this phrase, this came about that in the days when the judges governed the people of God, the, 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 the nation of Israel. And we recognize that this is a time that's between the era of Joshua. Moses leads the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt and that 40 years in the wilderness. And after that 40 years, uh, God brings Joshua to leadership as they go into places like Jericho and to Canaan, and they conquer the majority of the space and the area that God's given them as a people to have as a home. But following the, the era of Joshua, there was this period called the era of the judges. It's before King Saul and before King David. And in this era that we see detailed in the book of Judges, just before this book of the Scripture, the Bible describes it in the book of Judges as a time when everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. The, the cycle of life in the book of Judges for the people of Israel was simply one of this. A people who had by and large forgotten and, and looked past all that God had done, who had begun to ignore the very covenant that God had made with them back at Mount Sinai under Moses' leadership, who had pushed all that aside and began to chase every god around them and to find themselves engaged in idolatry and doing their own thing. They all decided that whatever they wanted to do was right. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the cycle was rebellion against God, followed by judgment from God. Uh, they would have some type of a people like the Moabites or the Philistines who would come in and, and oppress them and evade for a little while. They would cry out to God, and God would send someone like Gideon or someone like Samson, Samson or someone like Ehud. And these guys would, be, would rise up, deliver the people of Israel, and there would be a time of, of worship and time of, of renewal, and then the whole thing would happen again. And this just went on for decade after decade and decade after decade in the era of the judges. So that's when this story takes place. And Bethlehem, of course, as we know, we've heard of Bethlehem. We know it'll be a town of some importance in, in centuries to come. At this point in time in history, Bethlehem is a, is a know-nothing little village a few miles south of Jerusalem. And by the way, Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel. There is no capital the time of the judges, there is no national government in Israel. It's just a series of tribes and clans, all identifying themselves as Israelite, but no central authority, and they're all doing whatever they want to do. So that's, that's what's going on. And in this time period, there's a famine. Now, understand this. To us, I go, okay, that's, that's bad news. But understand, if you're listening to this and you know the story, that in that day and age, a famine would have had a clear meaning to the people of God. What was the cycle I just talked about? Sin, rebellion, oppression, disaster, repentance, and renewal. Well, one of the things that God had told the people of Israel in the covenant that God made with them through Moses in Sinai was this. If you guys, he says, turn to idols, if you guys turn away from me, I, will, I may send people to pressure. He says, I also may send famine. In fact, in places like Leviticus chapter 26 and in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God tells them that he will, in fact, send famine as a result of their disobedience to him. In fact, now let me read this from, from Deuteronomy 28, just to give you an idea of what's happening here. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 23, God says this to the people of Israel. 
If they sin, he says, the heaven which is over you, uh, which is over your head, shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you, iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust from heaven. It shall come down on you until you are destroyed. In other words, you turn away from me, the sky will dry up, the ground will harden, it'll turn to dust, and you'll have nothing. So when we come into this very first verse, those who are reading this passage or hearing it uh, two and a half, three thousand years ago would have understood something. That Ruth as a story is taking place at a time when God's people have turned their backs on him. And the people of Israel, the people of Bethlehem have done something. They've turned their back on God and the result is famine. So what we have here now is a people in verse 1 of chapter 1 in Ruth who have turned their backs largely on God and are experiencing his judgment and correction as a result. Just, a, just another couple of quick glimpses here. We're going to come across the Moabites in particular. But in this day of Judges, Israel was surrounded by a number of different countries like Moab, like Philistia, like Amnon. And all these different nations had their own gods. In fact, all these nations were polytheistic. They had multiple gods. But in addition to that, they would have had their own kind of patron god, if you will, someone who kind of stood up for them, those that, that god that they would have thought of as protecting their borders. And all these nations, the powers of whatever god they worshipped, was mostly confined to the borders of their nations. And so the Philistines had a god by the name of Dagon. The Canaanites, who often intermingled with the Israelites, had the god Baal, which we've heard quite a bit throughout the course of the Old Testament. And the Moabites had a god by the name of Chemosh, or Chemosh. And each one of these nations would have seen their god kind of protected them wherever they are. And once you crossed the borders, you left the domain or the power structure of your god, and you are now subject to the, god, to the power of whatever god or whatever nation you were in. That's how the nations of these days saw this. And when nation went to war against nation, what they were often doing was testing to see which God was stronger. Again, that's the, that's the era of the nations. That's the era of the judges' rule. Now, by the way, we, if we were to go back through the Old Testament and read through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, and you would find that much of that Scripture... Uh, the, 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 the accounts of Genesis are not just accounts of God's creating the world. It is an account of how God is superior over all other false gods. The, the, the nations worshipped that the Philistines, their god was a fish god. Dagon was a half, half man, half fish type of a thing. And if you look through Genesis chapter 1, the creation accounts, what you see is that everything else, all the gods that all the nations around Israel worshipped, all the things that they revered, all the things they made idols out of, God said, I made that. That's got no power. That's resting the palm of my hand. And so Israel had been told, Israel had been taught, Israel knew from uh, the, the time that God came, through, came to Abraham and had written all these things down through men like Moses. They knew that the nations around them, those gods were nothing. God created all there was. There was nothing else worth worshiping other than God himself. And yet, what did Israel do? They found themselves worshiping Baal and Dagon and Chemosh, the gods who were fake and had no power. Despite the fact they knew the story of Exodus, and by the way, the story of Exodus, those ten plagues, is a systematic approach by God to take on the pantheon of gods of Egypt. 
all their gods, the God of the Nile, the God of the sun, and the God of life, and all those things, and God systematically wipes them out before he delivers them. He's trying to make the point to Egypt and mostly to Israel that their God is not bound by boundaries. Their God has no national borders. The God of Israel, the God of the covenant with Israel, is a God that supersedes all nations, supersedes all boundaries, and is not limited by any others. That's their God. And yet, in the time of the conflict of the judges, they have turned their back on that God, and they're doing whatever's right in their own eyes. So, just these first two words, these first two phrases, we know what's going on in the book of Ruth. Everyone's doing whatever they want to do. They've turned from the worship of, of God, and the result is there is famine, there is God's judgment. And in the midst of this, a certain man of Bethlehem went to sojourn, or he went to live, in Moab with his wife and his two sons. Now, we'll see there in verse 6 that it's clear to even Naomi that the famine was brought on by God and that when the famine was over, it was, it was relieved, it was taken to an end by God. So she recognizes that the events of the famine are in fact brought about, brought about by God. The people of Israel probably knew the exact same thing. And so if you are the people of Bethlehem, if you're men like Elimelech, and you know that God is judging you because you've turned your back on him, what would be the logical thing to do at that point in time? It's called repentance. <laughs> oh, I did this. This happens. I'll not do that again. Maybe you experienced this as a child. Uh, at my house, when I was growing up, uh, we had on the top of the refrigerator a wooden paddle. That's where it was located. And there's the walk to the refrigerator where Dad's going to get something to drink, and there's the walk to the refrigerator where he's going to get the paddle. There are two different walks, and you can tell what they look like. And when you've done something you're not supposed to do, there's the walk to the refrigerator, and you know judgment is coming. It also is generally accompanied by something like this. Go to your room and wait. And then you sit there and dread it for a little while. And then he comes in and you receive judgment. <laughs> and the proper response to judgment is... Ouch. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You hear things like, it hurts me more than it hurts you. And you go, yeah, right. Mm -hmm, yeah. I didn't realize that was actually true until I was a parent. It really is true, I think. <laughs> no, no. And the idea, of course, is correction is supposed to bring about repentance, right? And so if you're the people of Israel, you know the famine comes from God. You know it's his version of judgment. It's his way of saying, get back over here. What should be the response? Get back over there. And yet, that's not what Elimelech does. He leaves. Now, I, don't, I never tried this, but I've heard of it happening when dad's going to come in and give a spanking and the response is to run away and not get caught. Like run around the room and just wait. Did that ever work? What does running away do when they're trying to spank you? It makes them mad, yeah. It, it doesn't go well. And yet, what does Elimelech do? He runs away. Now, understand, this is, what, this, this is the background of what's coming here. They, he runs away. It says his name was Elimelech. Now, 
Part of the story here are the names. The, the names of this Jewish family, the name of the, name of the Israelite family means something. Elimelech literally means this, God is king. And yet, as we look at the life of Elimelech, is, in fact, God his king? No. The story is written in such a way that if we were, if we were in, ancient, in ancient Israel, reading this some couple hundred years after the fact, we would know exactly what's happening. It would mean there's, there's irony here, that a man whose name is God is king is running away from the king, is refusing to be corrected, and is in fact turning his back on that king. There is an irony here that might be lost on us. Now for you and I, we've probably all relocated and moved at some point or another. Now some of you may have lived your entire lives right here in Russellville or London. I've lived in five different states throughout the course of my years <laughs> and for us when we move we just we just we just relocate it's not that big a deal there's nothing perhaps particularly significant about that in a spiritual sense we, we move we relocate we don't think too much about it but for Elimelech to leave Bethlehem to leave Israel and to go to Moab is not simply a relocation because of the famine it is by every sense of the word, a moving on, it's saying to God, you can't supply my needs here, I'm going to go try Kamash. It's not just that there's food there and not food here. It is, I believe that you cannot provide my needs here, so I'm going to cross the border, I'm going to cross into the land of Kimosh and see if I can do better over there. Mr. God is King has now abandoned his king and moved to Kimosh's territory. And that is the significance of what's happening here. Now again, we might not at first glance think it's that big a deal, but for those who were seeing and hearing the story for the first time two and a half, three thousand years ago, this is exactly how they would have understood it. This is a spiritual issue here. Ruth is a beautiful story, by the way. Some of you know it. It's going to have tragedy. It's going to have love or love. It's going to have some pain. It's going to have redemption. It's got a it's, got a, it's a story with a meaning behind it. And one of those is this Jewish family whose dad is named God is my king who turns their back on God and runs to Moab. Now, what is so wrong with Moab? Well, let me tell you, Moab is, uh, of all places, not the place you want to go if you're from ancient Israel. Um. Moab is the, are the descendants of Lot. You remember Abraham's nephew? And so Lot, um, if you remember the story, it's kind of a, one of those Old Testament stories you don't repeat in public, you know. But Lot had relations with his daughters, and in, in, in that incestuous relationship you have the descendants are, are Moab. Uh, not just that, but Moab had been incredibly hostile to Israel as they had been returning to the promised land. In fact, in Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24, uh, as Israel just wants to pass through on the way to the promised land, the Moabites get in the way, re refuse to let them pass through the country. In fact, you may remember the story of a guy named Balaam and his talking donkey. If you remember that story of Balaam and his talking donkey, uh, Balaam is a local soothsayer, a local prophet. And 
Balak, the king of Moab, wants to hire Balaam to curse the people of Israel as they walk through his territory. And Balaam shows up and says, I can't do that. God's making me say something nice about them. That's the Moabites that did that. Uh, it, later on, there's another account of the Moabites, uh, the, 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 the families of, of, the, of the Moabite daughters purposely intermarrying with and trying to seduce the men of Israel to worship false gods. Because of all this, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Moab, as a nation, had specifically by God been forbidden to have any access to the tabernacle. They weren't allowed to worship with the people of Israel. Moab essentially was, in many ways, we think of the Philistines, but Moab in, some way, in many ways was spiritual enemy number one for the people of Israel. God had specifically said to the Israelites, you don't marry them, you don't go there, you don't have anything to do with them, you don't let them in your houses of worship because they're going to mess it up. You stay away from them. So of all the places Elimelech could go, guess where he goes? Moab. This is like number one on the list of places to not go, according to the scriptures in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers. So he's not just relocating from Bethlehem to Moab to get some food. He's turning his back on God, who is his king. He's taking his family to a place that God has forbidden. And in addition to that, and we see the results of it, by the way, what happens when you embrace a place of spiritual death? Well, Elimelech dies. And again, this is going to be seen for those who are reading the story 3,000 years ago as a direct result of what this man did. In addition to that, what else do you get? You have, you have these two sons, uh, Malon and Chilion. Uh, I talk about names. These two names, and you may have little notes in your own Bible that said this, their names literally mean, Malon means to be sick. It means sickly. Chilion means dying. I don't know why you picked these names out. These two guys, son of a man called God is my king, have these names, sick and sicker. Some of you caught that. By the way, this is what happens when we turn our backs on God. This is where it leads us. If you are reading the story two and a half thousand years ago in the nation of Israel, these are, these are all signs that just point out, stick out like a sore thumb. Trust me, I'm not making this up. This is there if you were reading the story 3,000 years ago. And so, Mr. God is my king, leaves Israel, goes to the place he's not supposed to go above all others, has two sons named Sickly and Sicker. He dies, and then guess what? Surprise, so do they. Now, one more little note here on this that we'll, we might tend to look past. It says that those young men were married for about 10 years. They lived there for 10 years with their wives, uh, Orpah and Ruth. And guess what does not happen in 10 years? There's, there's no children. And again, for this day and age and this story, that is seen as an implicit sign of God's rejection of them. These, this family has left the people of God, turned their back on their king, gone to Moab, and the result is death and barrenness. And guess who's left to pick up the pieces? Naomi. 
So they've left. And our story there and back again, they have gone there. And there is a bad place. Elimelech, we cannot remain, we can't say this enough. He made a horrible mistake. When we encounter difficult days like a famine, and I don't, by the way, I don't want to move past that famine in such a sense of saying, I don't want to just kind of sneeze at it. A famine's a big deal. There's no food. It's hard. It's difficult. You're looking for solutions. You're getting desperate to how to feed your family. All those things are absolutely true. Charles Fuller, who wrote a book on the book of, on the story of Ruth, says this about Elimelech. The real proof of a man's faith is how he reacts when he's put under trial. We see the true heart and character of a man when he's under severe testing. The famine was a severe test. It was meant to bring the people of Israel back to their God. And instead, when Elimelech, Mr. God is my king, finds himself in difficult circumstances, instead of responding in faith and repentance, he runs away to Chemosh and to Moab, to a false god, to an idol. Now, he may well have expected to just come back someday, but here's the thing. You can't just dabble in sin and hope to get away with it. Elimelech may think to himself, oh, I can go over there. I, I know God told us not to go over there, but yeah, I can, I can stick my toe in for a few years and be okay and still get back and be okay, right? That's one of the great lies of Satan. I can dabble with this world. I can dabble with the values of what this world says is important. I can give myself just a little bit to the values of this world and to what they say is important. It won't be a big deal. I can stick my toe in it. It, it won't be a problem. And then 10 years later, We've got a spiritual death. By the way, this is, this is uh, the question that Elimelech had to answer is, is sometimes a question we have to answer today. Do I trust the character and the purposes of God or, don't, or do I not? When I look at what's going on in my life, whether I like it or whether I don't, do I trust the character and the purpose of God? Even if it's painful, will I obey? Even if it hurts, will I trust? Knowing that God's blessing and that God's purposes and God himself awaits on the other side. By the way, this is what Adam had to do in the Garden of Eden. Now, Adam had every advantage he could possibly have in the Garden of Eden, right? He's never sinned before. He doesn't have that sin nature you and I are born with. He's, he's brand new. He's got every advantage. He gets to see God on a regular basis as they walk through the garden. He knows what it is to be face-to-face -face with his Creator. And yet, even in the midst of that, when Satan shows up to him and Eve and says to Eve, can you really, did God really say that? You mean, what you, what you don't know, Satan says there in the form of a serpent, he says, don't you know that God just doesn't want you to be like him? In other words, you can't trust God. Adam, Eve, when the, when the, when the, when the difficult days are, 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 are there, when there's something out there that looks better, you can't trust God. You should trust yourselves or trust me. Adam, with every advantage in the playbook you could possibly have, he and Eve make the wrong choice. They choose not to trust. Elimelech chose not to trust.
when we meet here on Sundays or Wednesdays or when you spend time with Scripture during the course of the week, maybe in the mornings or evenings, whenever it is you have the ability to do that. When you, when you pray at home or whether we pray together here, when we sing, we are affirming and we are talking about and we are stating out loud the nature and the character of who God is. When we sing Jesus Messiah, when we sing Blessed Redeemer, when we sing about how Jesus is leading us on the way, one thing that you and I are doing is we are reminding ourselves this morning of who God is. Because whether we believe it or not, whether we think that we might be fall victim to this from time to time, you and I are much more like Adam and Elimelech than we may perhaps want to let on. We can be distracted by the circumstances of our lives. We can find ourselves thinking to ourselves, boy, this really stinks. Does God really have my best interest at heart? Can I really trust Him? Maybe I should try this. And when we come together, and by the way, this is one of the reasons we need to come together. We are reminding ourselves who God is. And we need that because you and I, we're forgetful and fickle. We are. Because Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays sometimes stink to high heaven, don't they? <laughs> and if we're not careful, we get so caught up in those, we find ourselves not trusting the God who made us. And so we need to, on a daily basis, by the way, Remind ourselves by being in Scripture, by praying, by singing. Yes, it's okay. You're in the car, you're at a stoplight. Sing for all you're worth. Who cares what the person next to you in the car thinks? Worship. Go for it. Remind yourself of who God is. Read the Scriptures on a daily basis. Remind yourselves of who God is. Elimelech forgot. And he goes to Moab. By the way, we know that Ruth is going to be a central character in this. And we know that God's going to redeem the circumstance. But I also want you to understand this. Even Chilion and Malon's marriage to Orpah and Ruth was a problem. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Israelites are forbidden from marrying, not just the Moabites, but anybody who's not an Israelite. In fact, later on, it's actually seen as a curse. It's a punishment. One of the punishments for God's people was that they would intermarry with non-believers. It was seen as a curse to marry a Moabite. So not only did he go to Moab, not only did he turn his back on God, not only did his kids die, but in the process, they married Moabites, which at that point in time would have been considered to be a, not just a bad idea, it was considered to be a curse. Now, some of this may sound really strange to our 2022 ears, but that's the context of the book of Ruth. That's how it would have been understood. That's the meaning behind what's happening here. That is the there, and the there and back again. But in verse 6, all this has happened. Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law, for she had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. As bad as the famine was for Elimelech and his family, as bad as and disobedient as they had been to go to Moab, as bad as all those circumstances were, guess who showed up? God. 
For those of you who know the story, if we were to stop here in the verse six verses, or if you, if you don't know the story, these first six verses sound pretty bad, and, and they actually are. But if you know the story, you know one of the great truths of Scripture. No matter how often we do stuff like Elimelech, God visits. God offers grace. God provides for what His people need. It says the Lord visited, and Naomi, even from Moab, even from the depths of sin, even from the depths of, of rebellion, heard and knew what God was up to back there in Bethlehem. She knew that God had showed up. And she recognized perhaps what the prodigal son would recognize in the Gospels. That God is a God of mercy. By the way, Naomi's name means pleasant. Now, it's not significant in these first six verses, but we will find very quickly that name has a significance in this whole account as well. We'll get there probably next week. But she knows something of God. She knows that even when people and His people are faithless, that God is faithful. She knows, hopefully like you and I do, that even when we have those weeks when we have forgotten God's provision, that we have those days when we have in fact grieved the Spirit of God, that you and I, when we have those moments when we have turned our back and decided to make ourselves our own kings, that even in spite of that, God shows up to His people. God works and He has grace and He has mercy and He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He in fact shows up. What does this book as a whole tell us about who God is? In verse 8, you're going to get a glimpse. We're going to look at this more next week. But in verse 8, Naomi is telling her daughters-in-law, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. That word kindly there is a Hebrew word called hesed. It's the word we get loving kindness from. We're going to see it repeated several times throughout the book of Ruth. One thing we're going to find out about God in the book of Ruth is that despite the actions of an Elimelech or a Malon or a Chilion, God is full of loving kindness. By the way, loving kindness is not just an emotion. It's not just a sentiment. It's not a feeling. Loving kindness in Scripture is always accompanied with an action. Loving kindness doesn't say, I hope you get something to eat. Loving kindness shows up with a plate of food. Loving kindness doesn't go, man, you look thirsty. Good luck with that. Loving kindness shows up with a glass of ice-cold water. That's loving kindness. And God shows up, and He is going to, he's going to bring loving kindness. And what we're going to see throughout the book of Ruth is this, that God may act through natural events like famines. He may, he, He's going to express loving kindness. Even what seems like, throughout the, book, throughout the course of the story, random events, they're all orchestrated by God to redeem and to preserve and to sustain. God's hand is present in every little circumstance throughout this book. This book will tell us, the story will remind us that God does not let His promises die. That God is faithful. That God loves those who He has got that covenant with. And we're going to see in the next few weeks what is undoubtedly a beautiful story. We'll see, yes, ladies, we'll see romance. And guys, we're going to see romance. 
we're going to see suspense and we're going to see rescue. Hallmark could make a movie out of this. We're going to see great grace and we're going to see victory snatched from poverty and from bitterness and from disaster. But mostly what you and I are going to see is a faithful God. A God who despite the first six verses of rebellion and sin and faithlessness will redeem and provide and through what God or through what man intended for evil God will bring about not just the restoration of someone like Ruth and someone like Naomi but he will in doing so provide the foundation for the kings of Israel and for the Messiah so not to spoil the ending, but to spoil the ending, Ruth is a grandmother, or I'm sorry, great-grandmother to King David. She is in the line of our Messiah. Yes, Elimelech sinned. Yes, this was seen as a curse. Yes, there's nothing good about the there, the there and back again. And yet, despite all that, God takes this sin, He takes this faithlessness and He uses it and redeems it and it becomes a tool and an instrument in His hand that leads to our redemption as well. What a great God this is.